Well, good morning. It is good to be here. Certainly bring you greetings from the brothers and sisters that you have at Compass Bible Church in Aliso Viejo. They are excited that they are fraternal, that they are your brothers and sisters. They pray for you. I can attest to that, and uh, they are excited. And as Bobby was recounting how exciting it is to think about the planning of this church, you need to maybe jot this date down, September 18th. That's when the next brand new baby Compass Bible Church is being planted in Tustin, California on September the 18th. So that's going to be an exciting time. And then I wonder where you'll plant your first Compass Bible Church. Where will that be? In Torrance or maybe in Downey or Arcadia, maybe in Palm Desert, maybe in Carlsbad. I mean, there are, there's a need in almost, I mean, you throw a dart at the map and know that there needs to be a solid, vibrant, exciting, enthusiastic Bible teaching church. And I hope that you take that eighth distinctive seriously because the more Compass Bible churches we can plant that hold the distinctives that we have and the doctrine that has changed generations, speaking of Whitfield and all the rest and Jonathan Edwards, I mean, we need this in our country now more than ever. And Southern California is a strategic place to get started with this. Now, this has nothing to do with my sermon, but you got me on a rant here about our need for new churches. So I want you to be praying for the next one for us, which is September 18th, Tustin, and you need to be praying uh, for what you're going to do in multiplying this congregation somewhere. And many of you will be the core group that'll go out and plant that new church. And I don't want to get ahead of your pastor because I'm sure he's praying and thinking about that. But be praying and thinking about it yourself because one day you're going to hear it from this platform. New church starting at this place in this city. And as I tell our people, you need to be willing to at least consider that God may be calling you to be a part of that core team. And for the core team that left AV to come here, you can attest it's an exciting thing to be a part of a core team that God is using to plant new churches. And I'm excited about this one. And I'm excited to be a part of the Great Awakening Week. Wow. That's a high calling. We're great awakening. And it's already started out in Temecula there. I saw your great awakening. I saw it on the internet, on Facebook. And it's exciting to see God doing new things in lives as he's been doing in past generations. And it is exciting to be a part of great awakenings. And I should say, you should know this about great awakenings. When God brings a great awakening, it not only will bring to life things in your life that were dead, that will come alive. I mean, a hunger for his word, a love for the true and living God a desire to share your faith, those things that were dead and dormant and didn't exist, they will, they will spring into existence. That's true. But you also need to know the flip side of that. There's a lot of things that are alive in your life that need to die. And there's a lot of things with a great awakening when God gets a hold of your life that, that need to be killed off and God is going to work to make that happen. I mean, I, I guess the most obvious are our sinful behaviors there are things that we do that need to stop that God begins to work at putting to death in our lives. And then there's a series of words that are so much easier to, to, to engage in that need to stop. Words that would spill out of our mouths that now begin to become curtailed and, and they begin to pass away. And then the most subtle of all, there's a lot of things that go on in the privacy and secrecy of our own hearts uh, that do not please God that need to start dying and those things need to go away. Now, many of the behaviors, they're very obvious. You know, cheating, stealing, those kinds of things. They need to stop. And as soon as you are tempted to do those, you'll recognize that you'll throw a flag. You'll say, these are not things in keeping with God and what he wants. And, and you'll, you'll go to war against those things. 
A lot of words, too, that may come out of your mouth. And even as God begins to work in your life, you'll say, wow, this is wrong. I, I shouldn't be gossiping, and I shouldn't be lying, and I shouldn't be cursing. And those things need to stop. And, and you'll see those. Those will be evident and obvious. And even in the things I said were subtle, in the secrecy of your life, there'll be a lot of emotions that you'll have and feelings that you'll have. That you go, I know these don't please God. I mean, there'll be lust. There'll be hatred. There'll be things there. You go, oh, oh, that's not right. God doesn't want those. But I'm here today to address a subtle attitude within the depths and secrecy of your heart. That if God is getting a hold of your life and, and pr producing this great awakening that we're celebrating this week, uh, you need to make sure you declare war on this. And you've already seen it, I hope, if you've seen the outline or the title this week. And that is something very culturally acceptable, and it's, it's, it's simply worry. Worry, anxiety, fear, fretting. Someone comes to your small group and says, you know, I, I got a problem. I, I you know, I, I hate my next door neighbor. Well, that's going to get some attention. You know, I, I, I'm tempted to cheat with a lady across the street. Well, that's going to get attention. Uh, you can say, well, you know what? I, 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 I cursed all afternoon on Thursday because I was saying, get people's attention. That's a jaw dropper. People, oh, well, you need to deal with that. But if someone says, I'm worried about the economy. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm a little fretful about the political season, the stability of our country. You know, I, I'm worried about my job. I'm not, I mean, it's like we yawn through those things because they're not only culturally acceptable. Some people feel like if you're a mom, your job is to worry about your kids, right? If you're in this world and we have the news going on about, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda and ISIS and all that, well, of course, I mean, it's natural and normal that we would worry and we'd be, we'd be anxious about that. We send our, our, our family off somewhere, our kids off somewhere, and, and to worry, we think that's the right thing to do. We need to understand something about worry, something about anxiety, something about fear that was so offensive to a holy God that Jesus talked about it more than a lot of other sins you would ever think. I mean, it, it's the focus of his teaching time and time again. He, he really says it, it strikes at the heart of something that should be so resident and central in your life as a Christian that if you don't start to, to, to assault this sin in your life, uh, you've really got a problem with your relationship with God. Matter of fact, I can tell a lot about your relationship with God by how your heart trusts in God and vanquishes just by the nature of your trust in God things like anxiety, fear, and worry. This is one of many passages that Jesus addresses this topic, and I'd like to look at it together with you this morning. Luke chapter 12, verses 22 through 33. So grab your Bible, pull out your iPad, your phone, call up this text, and look at it with your own eyeballs as I read it for you and recognize how important this is. And if you say, well, the Holy Spirit, if the, if the Holy Spirit invades my life and it's all about the Great Awakening, well, this is God's work. Now, I understand that. Things are going to come to life in your life because of the power and presence of the Spirit. And things are going to be at least producing a kind of guilt in your life. And, and there will be a guarantee of the vanquishing of those things in your life because of the presence of the Spirit. But please don't forget that though these things may be assured by the presence of the Spirit in your life, they are a daily battle. God expects us to fight. You cannot accomplish the death of these things that offend God, whether they be sinful actions, sinful words, or sinful feelings, attitudes in our heart, unless we work at it every day. So let's not be passive in our sanctification, thinking somehow this is going to happen on its own. Jesus gives us logic here. 
He gives us issues of trust and conviction here. He talks about priorities here. These are things we need to take to heart. So let's look as we, as we see this passage. I'll, I'll read it for you. You follow along and we will see the lesson that Jesus gives us about faith and priorities that I trust will do something this morning to help you launch a counter assault against fear and worry in your life. Beginning in verse 22, Luke 12. Are you with me on this? And he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat, about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. Here's a little of his logic now. They neither sow, they don't reap, they, they, they neither have storehouses or barns, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? More logic, verse 25. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his, to his lifespan? If then you are not able to do a small thing as that, then why are you anxious about the rest? Another example, verse 27, consider the lilies, how they grow. They don't spin, they don't toil, they, they don't do any of that work to try and look it. Yet, I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory, all his royal regalia, he wasn't arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you? Here's an indictment of little faith. Now, how did this start? Verse 22, disciples. You may sit here and say, I'm a disciple of Christ. You may be a disciple of Christ. Say, I have faith for Jesus to save me. Jesus says, do you have enough faith for you not to be worried this week? Do you have enough faith in your life to not be fretting and fearful? Then he says, really, it's not just about attacking sinful attitudes. It's about replacing it with something. And so he does in verses 29 through 33. And, and, and do not seek what you're to eat and what you're to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations would seek after these things, and your father knows that you need them. Verse 31. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. As a matter of fact, Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where, thief, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus got a lot to say to us in a day and in a culture and in a world that seems to fuel and inflame our fears every single day. And the answer isn't to stick your head in a hole and say, well, I'm not going to listen to the news. I'm not going to look at my 401k. I'm not going to look at my bank statement anymore. No, not at all. These are realities. We live in a world we need to understand. Uh, you got bills to pay. You got to look at whether or not you're making enough money to pay those bills. You've got issues that really might be of a concern regarding the welfare of your life and your family. You got to look at those things. The goal isn't to ignore these threats. It's to have the kind of faith that overcomes these threats so that your heart is not filled with worry and anxiety. And let's tear this apart and try and figure out some of the strategies for us in this text. You see verses 22 through 28 as I read it to you. This is certainly something that is addressing our faith. Our faith in what? Our faith in a God. There's three movements here in this. Verses 22 through 24. Verses 25, 26, and 27, and 28. Three different movements of things that I'm supposed to understand, and all of them contain some promise. So let's put it this way if you're taking notes. Number one, we need to not worry. That's what we're going to attack in our lives because we are trusting God's promises. Let's start with that. Don't worry. Trust 
God's promises. Now, three things we need to look at. Promises that God makes in this passage that should vanquish and eschew and dispel the worry and fear in my life as I look at all the real threats and issues and problems and fears that might grip the life of a non-Christian. They're not going to grip my life if I can understand these three things. It's about faith in these things, these promises of God. I had uh, my second born son had a birthday yesterday. He's 18. I got an 18-year-old and a 19-year-old, and they're both golfers. Um, last year, my son was the captain of his golf team. Year before that, his brother was the captain of the golf team. So they're really good golfers, and, and that's because we threw them on the golf course when they were like four and five years old, and we taught them to swing a club, and it didn't take but a few years till they were beating us handily on the golf course. I don't understand how that works. My wife and I have played golf for years, but they're much better golfers than us, and they were even better golfers than us in junior high, which is kind of embarrassing to admit, but really good golfers. Well, sometimes we're out there golfing and, uh, you know, and there might be someone that's watching, particularly on the first tee, if you know what that's like, the golfers, you know, you go out there in the first tee, sometimes near the clubhouse, near the coffee shop. And, and when I get up there, I'm very fearful if there's an audience watching me swing the club, you golfers smile at me if you know that fear of like, I don't want to, you know, can, I'll just skip the first tee and drop the ball in the fairway. We well, can't do that. So you're going to take that first swing. And my heart is petrified to, to swing that because I'm not that good of a golfer. And a lot of times you'll shank it. You just don't want to miss. You don't want to whiff. That's what you're trying not to do. But, you, you know, I recognize my, in, my, my, in, my lack of ability in this game to be proficient. And, and so I, I'm, I'm afraid. But when I'm done, you know, hooking the ball into the houses or whatever, and my sons step up, okay, uh, my feelings change completely. As a matter of fact, I stand out of the way so that the guys watching can watch my sons hit the ball. Because I have confidence in the way that they're going to hit this golf ball. Not only in the fairway, but like, you know, 280 yards, 300 yards down the fairway. I'm just like, I, I want them to see it. I almost want to get their attention and say, all right, you ready, guys? Here go my boys hitting a golf ball. Now, here's the thing about my sons. I step up to watch them hit a golf ball off the first tee with a great deal of confidence that they are going to hit the ball well because they hit the ball well most of the time. But my wife will tell you, they don't hit the ball well all of the time, right? But they hit the ball well enough most of the time that I have confidence in my heart. It does not beat out of my chest as it does when I see my wife or myself step up to the tee box. Sorry to throw her under the bus, but she'll admit it. Like, oh no. So I have a great confidence they're going to hit it well. L listen, if I can do that with my sons that hit the golf ball well about 80, 90% of the time, how confident should I be whenever God says, I'm going to do this in the future based on his track record in the past? Let me ask you that. I mean, here's what the Bible says about God. And I'll just quote it for you. In, in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18 says, it is impossible for God to lie. Now, I know we're filled with a world of people who lie to us. But if you're a Christian, I hope you can get outside of your experience for a second with people telling you things and think about the God of the universe. Can he lie? He can't lie. So when he says, I'm going to do this thing in the future, he is absolutely 100% every time he stepped into the tee box, he's hit it absolutely straight in the fairway every single time. So when he says something about the shot he's about to make, how do you feel about it? If your heart's beating out of your chest, I'm not sure he's going to do these three things that he promises here then something's really wrong with you, right? I don't think you understand the God of the Bible who promises some things in this passage that are indisputable and they are true about you.
Okay, so let's look at the first one. I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to put on, all of that. Your life's more than food, body more than clothing. We could preach on that principle. That's important. But the point is, he's got you taken care of. He's going to take care of you. Consider the ravens. Now, here's the logic. They don't sow, they don't reap. They don't have storehouses or barns, refrigerators or pantries. Yet, God feeds them. Now, here's the question for us. How much more value are you than the birds? If you're taking notes, jot this down. This is worth writing down. Here it comes. Number one, you need to believe that God values you. Let's just start with that simple concept. Let's believe today, right here in the 21st century, in North Orange County, God values you. Now, you've got the context. Disciples sitting around being told, listen, vanquish this secret sin of anxiety and fear. Do not do that. Don't let that sit there in the recesses of your heart. Do not worry. Do not fear. Do not fret. Don't be anxious. And he says, first thing is, believe me, listen, I value you. That's a good place to start. I value you. Jot this down. Psalm 8. It's a great psalm. There are a lot of things in this world we look at. And we are impressed by, and painters paint them, and astronomers take pictures of things in the, in the cosmos. We have people today that'll be just overwhelmed with the beauty of Huntington Beach. They've never been here. They visit. They're awed. They're inspired. They buy t-shirts. They, they, they buy postcards. This world, it's amazing. It's great. Psalm 8, here's the logic of Psalm 8. Yeah, it's great. Psalmist says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars that you've set in place, it's amazing. And I think to myself, what are we, human beings, what are men, what are people that you would take any interest in us? Now, I understand that may be how we naturally feel when we look at big and important things like this spinning six septillion ton rock called earth with all these things on it that make us, you know, uh, impressed with how great the world is. But God says, all of that world, really nothing compared to how I value you. Because the next thing in that psalm is this. Think of what he's done to these little human beings on this planet. He set them above the entire creation. It's completely contrary to what these radical environmentalists will say. Right? We are not a blight on the world. Right? We're not a problem to this planet. The planet was made for us. Not to abuse it. Not, not, not to you know, not take care of it. But you understand everything in this world is subject to us in terms of the fact that God values us far more than anything he's ever made. Now think about that. And it says that. You've given us dominion over those things. You've crowned us with glory and honor. The people of the planet. You don't even have to be a Christian to have this passage apply to you. You are more important than anything in this world to God. That's a good place to start. Oh, and then by the way, it says that if you are a Christian, God looked at your state as a sinner and though there were sinning angels that are far more glorious, objectively speaking, than any human being on the planet, he chose to redeem you guys and not even the angels. There's no hope for every fallen angel. They've made a decision. They're, they're, they're stuck in their, in their plight. You and I have made a series of decisions, sinful decisions, and God says, I'm going to look to those people and I'm going to redeem them. So if you're sitting here as a Christian this morning, you put your faith in Christ, you've repented of your sins. God says, I have redeemed you. That makes you even in God's economy more important, not only than creation, but more important than the angelic class of sinners. You're a human sinner that God has sent his son to redeem. And angels scratch their heads at that and think, I don't even understand 
how God would take so much attention and give his attention and his concern and his redemptive sacrifice for people like us. You sit here today, you may feel small in light of all the things that, you, that impress you. You are more impressive to God just by being a human being. And then add to that that you're a redeemed human being. God has set his focus on you so much so that to compare it to an illustration in the Old Testament, when God looked at his covenant people in the Old Testament, he says this in two passages, if you want to jot them down. Deuteronomy 32, verses 9 and 10, and Zechariah 2, verse 8. Deuteronomy 32, 9 and 10, and Zechariah 2, 8. Here's the illustration. I know you've heard it, but you probably didn't know where it was found. He says, you guys in a howling wasteland are to me the apple of my eye. Now, I grew up hearing that phrase. I didn't even know what it meant, right? But the apple of one's eye means the lens of the eye. In a howling wasteland, right? When you're in a, a, a sandstorm in the desert, uh, you, you, you have to protect your eyes. And, and you're always careful about your eyes because it's such a sensitive part of your body and your face may be pelted with sand. You're going to shut your eyes. You're going to cover your eyes. You're going to put something over your eyes. You're going to protect your eyes. And he says, in a howling wasteland, he said, I've encircled my people, I've cared for them, and I've kept them as the apple of my eye. Zechariah chapter 2, verse 8, he says, whoever touches you, touches the apple of my eye. Now there's a lot of, you know, you meet me at the door, you can high five me, you can knuckle me, you can even give me a hug if you'd like, uh, all of that, whatever. But you go sticking your finger in my eye when you greet me at the door, I'm not going to handle that very well, Right? <laughs> Just like if I come up to you and poke your, your eyeball, right? What if I did that? Hey, how you doing? Mm. You're not going to like that. You need to understand God values you so much, not only as a human being, as a redeemed human being, you are like God's eyeball. And if you mess with the eyeball of God, you're going to get God's attention. He's going to respond and react. Do you understand God, how much God values you as a person, as a redeemed child of his? And you're sitting around worrying about whether or not uh, you're going to have uh, enough money to make it this month. You're sitting around worried about, you know, I don't know, the political state, the economy. You're worried about your health. You're worried about what the doctor's going to say when you get the test result. Listen, you are more valuable to God than anything in the universe and I mean that even as I compare it not only to the things that he's made in this world, but the creatures that he's made, this angelic class of being. That's a big deal. He says in uh, Luke chapter 11, it's like a father caring for children. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, is going to give him a serpent? And you're saying, I've asked for a better job. I've asked for a raise. I've asked for good health. God hasn't given me what I've asked for. And you think somehow it's like a dad giving his kid something bad when he asks for something good. Now, I know this would take an entire sermon series to explain to you. But when God doesn't give us what we want, right, it's not because he doesn't care for us. It's not because he doesn't value us. It's because he's got some other plan involved in this. Just like a father in this room who's got little children is not going to say, oh, I didn't feed them today. And when they say, daddy, daddy, can we go get lunch today? And say, ah, oh, no, whatever, just suck on your thumb, right? No, dad's not going to do that. Even a dad knows, I'm going to take care of my children. I'm going to provide for my children. Now, it may be the kid's not going to get what he wants, when he wants it, but dad's going to make sure he's cared for because he cares for his children. He doesn't just leave them in the church and forget about them. And at four in the afternoon, oh, I got to go back and get my kids. I forgot. Oh, they haven't been fed. That doesn't happen. 
And the Bible says, if sinful people know how to care for their kids, how much more does the father know how to care for you? He values you. And that's, I suppose, the best we can get in terms of earthly relationships, the way that a parent cares for a child. Don't worry, trust God's promises. Promise number one is God values you. God says, I value you. Second uh, installment of the logic here in verses 25 and 26 we find, it says, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you are not able to do such a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Now, here's the thing. The Bible says, why don't you try extending your life with worry? Doesn't work. Doesn't work. You can't do anything with anxiety, worry, and fear. It does not help you at all. Let's put it down this way. Here's the promise of God. You need to believe that anxiety is useless. If you're taking notes, this would be like letter B, okay? First of all, we need to understand God cares for you. Letter B, you need to believe that anxiety is useless. Why would you spend your time doing useless things? Now, people do useless things all the time. Useless things that they think will help them. People usually, when they do useless things that they think will help them, we roll our eyeballs, raise our eyebrow, whatever, and we say, oh, that's so silly. Maybe it's a superstition that they have. Now think about that. There are a lot of athletes that have superstitions, do they not? There are a lot of baseball players. Have you seen the baseball players? They won't step on the chalk line when they go out onto the field. They don't step, because that's a superstition. Now you tell me, stepping on a line of chalk on a piece of dirt, will that really matter how you play the game? No, but in their minds, I mean, that's just their little superstition. It's silly. Or some coach in the basketball, you know, arena that's going to bite on his towel and he thinks if he doesn't have his favorite lucky towel that he's biting on, well, then the game won't go the way that he wants it to. Or a tennis player, because all the tennis is going on right now. There are tennis players that say they don't change their socks through the entire series. Of, uh, and I can't imagine that. I don't know if these guys are married or not, but I don't see how that works. But they don't change their socks. And I'm thinking to myself, really, do ratty, old, smelly socks help you play better tennis? And you'd say, no. It's their silly superstition. Now, that would be one thing for me to say to you. Why are you worried? Why are you fearful? It does nothing for you. Nothing for you. It doesn't help you. There's nothing that's going to happen in your life that is positive because of anxiety. That'd be enough of a point to make, but let me make it this way. It is not only not helpful for you, it is counterproductive for you. Counterproductive. Now, it doesn't matter if you don't step on the chalk line. It doesn't matter if you chew a towel, if you're a coach, as long as you take it out of your mouth to talk to your players. It doesn't matter if you don't change your socks, I suppose. It doesn't matter, right? You'll still got socks on. You need socks and you'll have socks. But if I said, well, you know, I, I found a runner whose superstition is to wear a backpack full of books when he runs the race. Well, that's a stupid, stupid superstition. Now, you can have a superstition, I suppose, if it's, if it's irrelevant, but that one is relevant because it's counterproductive for you. Or with all the news of the swimmers now with the Olympics coming up, you think, well, you know, Phelps has got a new uh, superstition, and that is to wear a tuxedo when he swims, right? That, he just feels like that's going to help him. Not going to help you. Or a dancer, he says, well, you know, if I wear combat boots, I think it's going to help me dance better. It's not going to help you. And there are a lot of people here, because society doesn't see it as a bad sin. Christians don't see it as all that bad of a sin. You think that worry can be a resonant part of your life and it's not a problem. And the Bible is very clear. It doesn't help you. And here's why. The word itself that translates anxiety in this passage, not be anxious, it, it comes from the Greek word that, that means division, to be divided. Merimanao comes from the root word meridzo. Meridzo is the Greek word to divide. 
And the point is, here is the problem. Internally in your heart when you worry, your, your brain, your mind is divided. Let me, I like this word for it. Here's what anxiety feels like. You're scatterbrained. You're a scatterbrained. Your brain cannot focus on what's in front of you as it would if you weren't worried. Worry is counterproductive. It's like wearing a tuxedo and trying to swim. It's like having combat boots and trying to dance. It's like having a backpack full of books when you're trying to run. It doesn't help you. There's one thing Christians need to be, particularly Christians, clear-minded. We need to be clear-minded. We need to be able to be focused. We need to be able to fix our focus on what's ahead and do it. Now, here's the problem. Anxiety doesn't let you do that. Meridzomai to be divided, meridzo, to split in half. Your brain becomes scatterbrained. The Bible says don't be scatterbrained. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, great passage, says, listen, you need, when you start feel scatterbrained, you need to pray. The faith-building exercise of prayer. Just, would you start praying so your mind can be clear-minded again? And here's how it's put. You're basically, instead of worrying, you're taking your prayer, which is a request, and you're, you're giving it to God. Which, by the way, when you pray, try not to use the word prayer when you pray. Are you following the logic of this? Try not to use the word prayer when you pray. It's like a lot of Bible words and Christian words we use when we don't think about what the word means. We say, I pray for this person. I pray for that. You know what prayer means, the word? It means to ask for something. I pray for this person. I pray for that person. You know what you're saying? I ask for this person. I ask for that person. What are you asking? Do you understand? Prayer is asking God for something. And the Bible says, be anxious for nothing but in everything. Right? You're supposed to, with prayer and thanksgiving, you're supposed to ask. You're giving God a request. Let your request be made known to God. See, when I start feeling scatterbrained and fearful about things, the uncertainties of the future, whether it's long-term, whether it's corporate, whether it's national, whether it's local, whether it's ecclesiastical, whether it's personal in my own future, and I'm starting to be tempted to worry, the Bible says, just ask God, ask God. That's a good verse. I hope you wrote it down. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Here's one to put right next to it. 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7. There's a great coupling of two, two, two passages. Philippians 4, 6 and 7, 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7, and here's the same idea in 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7 with a more vivid terminology. It says this. He says, listen, you should not be worried. You should humble yourself under God's mighty hand. He has power. Casting all your anxieties on him. When you're scatterbrained, say, God, I'm thinking about these things. I'm worried about these things. Give it to you. See, anxiety doesn't help. The only way you can turn anxiety into something positive is to say, every time I feel anxiety, it's going to be a trigger to pray. And when I pray, I'm really going to try to turn this problem over to God. My family has a no problem with this. When something breaks in the house, uh, and I, I know I've probably created the problem, they don't even try to fix it anymore. They just set it aside for dad. Here, dad, fix this. This doesn't work. That doesn't work. I come home. All these things that don't work. Dad, you're the magic man. Fix it all. Now, that's really what God would have us do. Something's broken. He wants us to start with this. You know what? I know God can deal with this. Now, he may give it back to you, as I try to do with my family, and say, if you just do this, that, and the other, it would work, right? And he may have you do some things, but you start with this. God, here's my request. Here's my concern. You need to know this. God cares for you. That's a promise. You have to start believing. You have to believe this. God says anxiety is useless, so stop with all that. If anything, turn that into a trigger to pray. Thirdly, verse 27. Still got the passage open? Luke chapter 12, verse 27 and 28. Third installment of this logical response about our faith, he says this, think about the lilies of the field. 
they, uh, how they grow. They don't, they don't toil. They don't spin. They don't make their clothing. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory wasn't arrayed like one of these. And if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow's thrown in there, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? We've shifted now from God cares about you. Anxiety is useless. And now he says this, God will take care of you. Now that's even a stronger promise. God values you. Oh, that's a good place to start. Anxiety is stupid. It's foolish. It's useless. Okay, that, okay, all right. You're right. I need to stop. I need to pray. Now he says this, I'll take care of you. I'll put it this way. Number, you need to believe that God will provide. Believe that God will provide. You have to believe that. Believe it. Here's what the Bible says. God will provide. He will provide. But I'm really worried. God will provide. Here's what I want you to look at. Turn, turn to Psalms with me if you would. Keep your finger here or bookmark our passage, Luke 12, and look at this text with me, Psalm 37. You need to believe this on the testimony of people who've lived it and watched it all around them. God is a God who provides for his people. He will provide. Not everything we want, but all that we need. I should say that probably three or four times because I know we talk about first world problems, right? First world people get that mixed up. They think that what they want is what they need. What you want is not necessarily what you need. There's only a few things probably that you want that you actually need. But God says, I will provide what you need. Take a look at this text. Psalm 37, drop down to verse 25. Here's the testimony of the psalmist. David says this, I have been young and now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Read it again. Verse 20. I've, I've been young. Now I'm old. I haven't seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Now you're going to say, well, are you telling me Christian never going to lose his job? Didn't say that. Are you telling me a Christian is never going to open his refrigerator and have nothing? Didn't say that. I said, God will provide. Let me be very practical. You don't shut the refrigerator when it's empty and you have nothing in your checking account and you pray to God and you open it to see if he's filled it. No, not yet. Okay. God, please, I need some food for my family. Oh, no, not yet. God, please, I need some food for my family. Here's what the Bible says. God will provide. To be very specific, Christ will be a Christ who gives you all that you need. Now, here's what the Bible says. He is the head and his people are the, what is it? Body. He is the head of the church. His people are the body. See, if your refrigerator is empty, you have a room full of people right here who have refrigerators, and I'll bet there's enough in the refrigerators of all the people in this room to make sure that if your refrigerator is empty, that we will all eat and we will probably have more calories than we need this week. Absolutely. God will provide. If, if you say, like me, <laughs> I can't afford earthquake insurance, and I turn on the news, and I learn about the San Andreas Fault again, and they tell me again, it's going to be horrible and awful. My house is going to be, you know, completely shut down, and I'll have nothing, and it's going to burn to the ground. Okay, I better get uh, uh, earthquake insurance, and I look at it, it's $10 trillion, you know, for earthquake insurance. I can't afford that. Oh, no, worry, fret, I'm afraid what's going to happen to me. Here's the thing. If my house collapses... Right? Am I going to now send my children out to beg for bread and I'm going to be living you know, out in the middle of nowhere and I'm going to be you know, destitute? No, not at all. We, well, you know, if we all kind of live here <laughs> near the San Andreas. Maybe we're all going to, you know, it's all right. As I say to my church, 
You think about the worst case scenario of you not having what you absolutely need to survive. I want you to think about that. Can't find it. Okay? You need the body of Christ. And I say this to my church. I don't care how bad it gets. I don't care if ISIS takes over Orange County. I don't care if we have the worst earthquake we've ever had. Just try to get to the church. Okay? Just try to get there. Okay? Because we're going to meet here and we're going to provide for one another's needs. Right? Bring your slingshot and your BB gun if you have to. And we're gonna, we'll hunt for squirrels and we'll cook them in the parking lot. We will survive. And we will make sure that we care for each other. Because our job is not like the world to say, I better get all the food saved up. I better get all the water saved up. I better make sure that I can care for myself. You're in the passage, Psalm 37. Look back up at verse 21. The wicked borrows, but it doesn't pay back. The righteous, though, here's the characteristic of the people of God. We're generous and we give. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him will be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, verse 23 says, when he delights in his way, though he fall, and there will be problems for us, and you might lose your job, and you might have issues, and you might not be able to pay your medical bills, that may happen. He shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. Now, how do you feel the hand of the Lord? Through the body of Christ, to speak in New Testament terms. I've been young, and now I'm old have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He's ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. We will be cared for. When Peter was sitting there watching the rich young ruler with his bag of money walk away because he wasn't willing to give it up to follow Christ and they said, wow, this is something here. This guy has all this stuff. He's afraid to give it up. Peter speaks up and says to Jesus in Matthew 19, we've left everything to follow you. And, and you know what Jesus says? Here's his response. He says, you know what? There's not a person that's left anything. Houses, brothers, sisters, fathers, lands, children for my sake in the gospel. Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time? Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. Don't miss that. In this life, when I became a Christian, I made a decision to become a pastor, which really wasn't a, a career move to make a lot of money. I don't know if you realize that or not. Right? That was not, I had very wealthy people in the extended family of my life that said, that's a stupid decision, dumb decision. And I felt bad about the fact that I'm choosing this weird way to go to a college no one knows, to study the Bible that half the people don't believe in anymore, and then to be a pastor and who knows what that might pay. And I found out real soon, early in my ministry, not much. And I, I recognize this is a hard road if it's about money, but here's what I recognize. The day I became a Christian and said, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ, you know what I ended up having? Hundreds of houses, hundreds of cars. As a matter of fact, I can even, as a guest preacher in this church, I know if I go out and they've ripped off my car, the car that I drove up from South County, and, and, and it's gone, and I said, oh man, I have no car. I guess I'm gonna have to take the bus home. The bus line is down. I guess, Carlin, we're walking. Do you think I'd have to walk home today? I, I was expecting a little more reaction from you. <laughs> well, I know at my church, I wouldn't be walking home. The church would be like, yeah, we'll give you a ride. As a matter of fact, I'll bet Worst case scenario, if I said, I need, a, I need it for the whole week. Actually, I'm going, to, I'm going to preach. I'm leaving this afternoon to go preach at our, our camp, uh, you know, our compass camp. And, and if I said, I need it for the whole week, I'll bet in this room, I could probably get more than one person to offer me their car. I could probably look at the cars and rank them and pick a real nice car. 
So I'll take that, that car right there, please. I'll bet that could, you know why? Because I'm a follower of Christ and I'm part of the same body you are. And here's the thing, if you needed a car, and you can ask the people that know, I mean, here, here's my keys. If you need the car, take it. We are willing to share, generous and ready to share, giving. That's what the righteous do. And you know what that means? We really won't have a need among us. We really won't. Did I say you get everything you want? Was I clear about that? No. But you'll get everything that you need. Can you just right now know that I don't care what insurance you don't have on your life, you have the ultimate insurance, insurance that you could ever have. And that is that you are a part of the body of Christ. And if the worst takes place, as I like to say to my church, meet, meet, meet people here. Meet your church here. And we'll do the best we can and we will survive. David says, I was young, now I'm old, not seeing the righteous forsaken. You've got to believe that God will provide. There's three promises. God values you. He promises that anxiety is stupid and useless. I'm using the word stupid. He, uh, he used the word, what? It's of no value. It's not able to do anything. It's impotent. And God will provide. Great. I said this in the second half of this, as though I had time to preach this part of the, of the sermon. Verse 29 through 33. We've got to replace this with something. Don't seek. That word, by the way, let's underline that word in verse 29. Are you back now in Luke 12? That'd be a good place to get right now. Luke 12, 29. And do not underline this word or put a box around it or in your electronic device, highlight this word seek. When you get home, if you got Bible software or whatever, that's a good word to look up. This is a strong word. This is a word you might have like a, to pursue, to chase, to strive after. Do not seek, do not chase, do not strive after what you're to eat, what you're to drink, or to be worried. Now that doesn't mean that you sit there and don't try to order food at lunch today. No, you better order some food. But you're not going to strive. You're not going to chase. You're not going to seek it. You're not going to go after it like some kind of person that has to have it. Don't seek after these things that everyone else is looking for. They want things that are, are going to be fun and that are going to provide for them and comfort and convenience, all of that. That's not what I'm seeking. The nations of the world, they seek after these things and your father knows you need them. Now we're talking about needs, not wants. He knows you need food. He knows your kids need an education. He knows you need tires on your car. He knows you need a job. He knows you need those things. But your job is not to seek, to chase, to strive after those things. All the nations of the world, they're seeking after that. Instead, seek the kingdom. And these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock. The Father's good pleasure is to give you the kingdom. Therefore, you can be generous with what you've got. You can provide for yourself something in God's economy that's like money bags that don't grow old, treasure that doesn't fail, thieves that can't break in and steal it, and moths that can't destroy it, where your treasure is, your heart is also. Let's look at this second half real quick, and let's give it this title. Don't worry. That's our, our sermon this, today. Don't worry. Believe God's promises. That's number one. Number two, don't worry. Okay? Pursue God's agenda. That's what I'm, I'm going to do. I need to take my life and say, I'm not going to be grubbing after all the things the world is about. I'm going to have the treasure or the focus of my heart pursue and inflame my life to chase after, pursue after God's agenda, what God wants, all under the, the, the umbrella of the word kingdom. Okay, let me give you three subpoints under this one. When it comes to my work, it doesn't mean I don't work. I'm just going to work differently. Because if I look at this passage and say, oh, great. I guess I don't, I don't need a job. I don't, I'm not going to seek after what I'm going to eat, drink, or, 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 or clothes, so I guess I quit my job. No, it didn't say that. The Bible's very clear. There's a Christian work ethic, but it's not a kind of work ethic that's driven by greed or worry. Let's put it this way. Letter A, if you're taking notes. We need to work 
unlike, there's the key word, let's work unlike our anxious and greedy world. That's a phrase. I know it's long. I like to have my points a little shorter than that, but let's write it down. Uh, work unlike our greedy, our anxious and greedy world. Our world is anxious and greedy. They want security. They want convenience. They want comfort. They want stuff. They want big bank accounts. That's what they want. I'm going to work but I'm going to work unlike they work. I'm not going to work out of an anxious or greedy motive. I'm going to work differently. The Bible says this, Proverbs chapter 10. Here's a, here's a juxtaposition, a connection, a combination of two things you need to understand. And this is wisdom. Proverbs 10, 3 through 5. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry. Now that, there's the promise again. It's like the psalm we read. He's not going to let me go hungry. Next verse, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Now think about that. The promise that God will provide and then the command to be diligent. Now that does something for me. Most people are diligent with their hand because they're afraid there's no one out there to provide for them. They've got to provide for themselves. The combination in the scripture is God promises to provide and then he says, work diligently. That takes the pressure off of me. I'm not working for a paycheck. I'm not working for economic security. I'm not trying to do things in my life so I can provide some layer of protection for myself because my protection is not my bank account. My protection is not my insurance policies. My, my protection is not my alarm system on my house. My, my protection is not the locks on my doors. I'm trusting that God is a God who values me. Anxiety is stupid and ridiculous and worthless. And he says he's going to provide. So now I'm going to work differently than the world. I'm going to work heartily, to quote Colossians 3.23, but I'm going to work heartily for the Lord. In my secular work, now I'm a pastor, but in, in, if I were an accountant or an architect or whatever, doesn't matter what I'm doing, I'm going to do it for the Lord, which should certainly be the case for pastors and missionaries and, and Bible translators. Do it for the Lord. You're going now to, change, to exchange your dollars for a paycheck. I'm just going to say, don't do it for the paycheck. Do it for the Lord. Now, I'd say get an arrangement where you get paid for your work. That's important. But what I'm doing is, in my mind, I'm not working like the guy next to me in the office or the cube next to me. I'm working for the Lord, which, by the way, will make you a better worker than those that work for their paycheck, which usually means that Christians, if they really do their jobs well, will end up doing something that becomes more lucrative. I've given these illustrations before. Well, not to this group, I suppose. But you take a, a company like Chick-fil-A or, or what's the art one? Uh, What's the art one? Uh, Hobby Lobby. These that shut down their doors, right, on, on Sunday. Now, they're always in the news because of <clears throat> people that hate them because of their Christian values and all that. If you compare the money that they make in six days over the largest competitor, you can pick whatever competitor you want for Chick-fil-A. KFC was the one I've done the study on. You take Kentucky Fried Chicken versus Chick-fil-A, and they, with seven days open, make a lower profit per uh, uh, franchise per place per store than Chick-fil-A who says I'm willing to take a day off now think about that here's a company that says I'm willing to and it's the same by the way if you compare Michael's uh, the, the art supply store with with what's the store I just mentioned Hobby Lobby it rhymes I should remember it but that's those two you compare these I mean when you look at their budgets they're about the same Hobby Lobby Michael's Chick-fil-A KFC is even bigger I, I think no it's not bigger um, but those two, as I recall, uh, are, are similar in terms of their bottom line. But when you look at how they're making their money 
and, and what's more lucrative? I'm just saying this, and they're not doing it for the money. If they were, they'd be open seven days a week and not six. That's not a statement on the Sabbath or anything like that. This is a statement on a company, both of these companies trying to say, we're going to do things because we're working for the Lord. We care about his opinion. And all I'm telling you is stop working for a paycheck. Start working for the glory of God. And like Colossians 3, you'll do your work heartily unto the Lord, knowing that from the Lord you receive an inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. That's a great passage. Colossians 3, 23 and 24. And it reminds me how I'm supposed to work, which is much different than the greedy world. Well, let's get down to it. Verse 31 then of, of Luke 12. What am I supposed to seek? If I'm not working like they are, what am I seeking? And saying I work for the Lord. Well, here's what I'm seeking. You want to know what to pursue, what to chase after, what to have your heart zealously pursuing? Well, it says this, seek his kingdom, God's kingdom. And all these other things you're worried about, God will take care of them. They'll be added to you. Fear not, little flock. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You've got the kingdom. You've got entrance into his family. You've got forgiveness of sins. You've got a community of believers. That is your family. The kingdom has been given to you. And the future arrival of the kingdom, when these foretastes of the kingdom become the reality of the kingdom, when the kingdoms of the world become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, when you see that kingdom, that's all that this is about. And as Christians, that's what we live for. And the Bible says this, when you think about your life now, live for that thing. Letter B, I put it this way. We need to work to promote God's coming kingdom. Right now, we just have foretastes of it, then it's coming. So my life right now, I don't care if I'm a plumber, a welder, a framer, an architect, a lawyer, my job is to do my work as to the Lord, and my concern is ultimately the coming kingdom, which will make me be a good lawyer, a good welder, a good framer, a good manager, whatever I am. But the idea is, I'm not worried about the money. I'm really, if I'm going to use the word worried at all, I'm worried about the coming kingdom. I'm anxious for the arrival of the kingdom. I'm thinking about, and I'm, I'm pursuing and chasing the coming kingdom. Real quickly, this is a sermon within a sermon. Look at a few ways we do that. Number one, you pray for it. Do you pray every day for the coming kingdom? You want to take worry and extract it from the private recesses of your life? Start praying every day that you can't wait for the coming kingdom. Jesus, this is Jesus' idea, not mine. He says this when he taught his disciples to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What's the first thing that comes on the list? Thy kingdom come. Well, that's a good reminder. Did you pray for that this morning when you got up? How about yesterday? How many times did you pray for that? At least once, I hope. See, this is so convicting when we think about oh, it's so fundamental. It's the first thing on the list after worshiping God in my prayer life. I should be praying for the coming kingdom. You want to work and provide and, and strive for the kingdom, if that's your goal, you got to start praying for it. Pray for the arrival of the kingdom. Colossians chapter 3, verses 3 and 4 says, set your mind on it. Think about it throughout the day. Put a little uh, sticky note, a 3M sticky note, or whatever knockoff brand you use, maybe on the bezel of your computer screen, right? Do something. Maybe put a little verse from, from Revelation 21 or 22. Talk about the arrival of the, of the great verse I always quote, you know, the kingdoms of the world become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Put it down somewhere. Put it so that you remember. Set your mind on these things. Things above, not on things of this earth. And by the way, my favorite passage, I was just talking to my wife this morning about, it's, it's my favorite today. I don't know, maybe a different passage tomorrow, but Hebrews chapter 11. And since I said it was my favorite this morning, at least is today my favorite passage. Let's turn to this real quickly. If I can share one of my favorite passages with you. I said one of, but I said it, this morning it was the, my favorite passage. Psychotic. Uh, Hebrews 11, take a look at this. Love this, love, love, love 
Love this passage. So helpful and really crystallizes what we're talking about here. Hebrews 11, verse 13 through 16. Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. All of these, we've talked about all these patriarchs, all these important people, the Old Testament, died in faith. Okay? They died trusting. Trusting about God and his promises. Not having received the things promised. Right? They didn't get these things in their lifetime. And we're talking about the big promises now of the kingdom. But having seen them and greeted them from afar. I love that. Seen them. Their mind was set up and greeted them. They loved it. They thought about it. They prayed about it. They, they loved to think about the coming kingdom. And having acknowledged that when it comes to this earth, strangers and exiles on the earth doesn't really matter. Last time you rented a car, did you trick it out? Did you buy some new floor mats for it? Did, did you buy some cool, put a new stereo in your last uh, rental car? Why didn't you do that? Because you're going to turn it in in a week. I don't really care. I rented a car recently. I was speaking out somewhere and, and uh, they, they, they broke into it. Now I walked out there feeling not all that bad about it. Because <laughs> all that we had in it, Carlin happened to be on the speaking engagement. She went out and bought some shoes. I wish they were cheaper shoes that she had bought. And that's all they stole was a box of shoes. And I thought, well, unless it's a you know, size seven female that broke into our car, they're really disappointed with the take on this robbery because there was like nothing gone but this pair of shoes which I said, well, probably weren't, you probably weren't going to like them anyway. Um, how did I feel about that? Now I go out here and I have my car ripped off, right? Though I shouldn't feel, you know, too bad about it because that's the whole point of this illustration, right? I, I'd probably feel worse than when they broke into my rental car because I'm like, oh, whatever. Got insurance, fine, it's your car. I mean, I should feel worse, I suppose, because it's, you know, it's, it's a, you know, enterprise or whatever, but I didn't, it wasn't my car. See, and the, the problem is, you need to realize, you are, you are a, what is it, an alien and a stranger, an exile here. We're passing, remember the old, if you've been a long-time Christian in the 70s, you just talk, the world's not my home, I'm just the passing through. Remember that old phrase? Old-timers, smile at me. Only two of you knew that phrase. <laughs> right? The world is not my home, right? We're just the passing through. Okay. I remember that phrase. <laughs> and the Bible says, that's how we should view this world. So you don't get the race. So you don't get the big house. So you don't get the boat. So you don't get all these things. So you can't wear the latest clothes. So you don't have all that cool jewelry. What does it matter? Right? Having seen and greeted these promises from afar. Man, that, that's great. And these people who speak thus, they have this value system, verse uh, 14. They make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. It's not that they're just apathetic. They're not apathetic. They're zealous for something. It's just not this life. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. You could have lived like everyone else. You could have been grubbing for advancement and for riches and all this. You could have done that. But as it is, love this, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. It's like Abraham leaving Ur of the Chaldees to go to the promised land. And he never made it, really never built a house in the promised land. He lived in tents as a stranger and a sojourner. But he left that old place. He could have gone back. He didn't go back. He kept looking for the kingdom. I left my old life at 18. Left it. Done. I had, I had career aspirations. I had a full scholarship to go to college. I had all these things I wanted to do. And God got a hold of my life. I said, God, whatever you want me to do. Just as Shane got up here and said this morning, just whatever you want. Here's my life. God took me in a new direction. But the things of this world are not the things that God instills his desires in my heart. It's the kingdom. It's the coming kingdom. In the coming kingdom, he says, if you would have that desire for the coming kingdom, right, you'd know that what we're looking for is a better country, a heavenly one. 
Now look at this phrase. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Now flip that over, by the way. If you want a little conviction, God can be ashamed to say, I'm the God of that person. Why? If your values are you're so stuck on this earth, you're so worried about your advancement here. You're all worried about whether or not you're going to get raises and be rich and have that picket fence in the house. And oh, man, everybody will buy a house. What does it matter? Seek first the kingdom. Therefore, because people have these values, God's not ashamed to call. And you know what? And, and he's smiling because he knows where you're headed. For he has prepared for them a city. You're going to have a home. Seek to promote this kingdom. Pray for its arrival. Set your mind on it. Show the relative unimportance of this life and seek to promote it. I know this church is serious about promoting the kingdom. Get out there this week and promote it. That, that parade, it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter whether or not there's a really super cool parade. What matters is whether the people along that parade route understand what it is to get their sins forgiven and can join us in the kingdom one day because everything they care about in this life is going to burn. All that matters is whether or not they get saved. See, that's what we should be concerned about promoting the kingdom. Everybody in your office that's all trying to be successful, all that really matters is whether or not their name is going to be written in the Lamb's book of life, whether they're going to be in the kingdom with us. That's what matters. Seek first the kingdom. You're going to be a good worker? Yeah. Going to put a good float together? Sure. You're going to do great things in this world? I suppose so, but not for the reasons everyone else is. Lastly, verses 33 and 34. Now I can be generous because these possessions don't possess me. I really possess them and I can let go of them when I want to. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide for yourselves money bags that don't grow old, a treasure in the heavens. This is Luke 12, verse 33. That doesn't fail where no thief approaches, no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Be generous. There may be things you think you can't afford to give away. I'm not asking you to be stupid. I, I want to be prudent. But let's be generous. Does it really matter? Really matter? That when, when there's an opportunity to promote the kingdom and you say, well, it's another night out this week. I don't know. Don't want to go out another. Listen, to give up another night to go promote the kingdom? <laughs> to, have, to make friends by means of mammon, as the Bible says? To use my money to pick up a check at, at a lunch date with a non-Christian and say, yeah, I want to I pay for this. Not because I can afford it. Not because I have throwaway money. But because I want to build bridges with my income. My home that I'm so concerned about keeping is my little private getaway and the place. Can I open up my home to people and, and recognize I'm willing to sacrifice that and, and, and utilize my stuff and pay for things and buy more food for a dinner and the people in my... Do it. Be generous. And you know what you're doing? You're building up your treasure in heaven. Kingdom values are to love people. You will be generous the more you love them. The American Psychological Association said that one out of four people say that they are stressed about their money all the time. They say a vast majority, far more than not, are worried about their finances. And if all you would, if you had another survey about the state of our politics, the state of our world, the state of our economy, look what's going on in the EU, what's going on with ISIS, people are worried and they're stressed out. That's the world we live in. God expects something different from his kids. We live in a greedy, frightened, scared, anxious culture. Don't ever let that sin harbor in your life. You want a great awakening, that is something that needs to die. What needs to be awakened is a sense of faith and confidence in the promises of God and a renewed desire to pursue His agenda.
May that be the reality for this church, for my life, for yours. Let's pray. God, help us in a day filled with scary news. Personally, I suppose for all of us, we can think about things that have frightened us, whether related to our health or our economy. But as Psalm 112, verse 6 says, the righteous will never be moved. The righteous are not afraid of bad news. Their hearts are firm, trusting in the Lord. Their hearts are steady. They will not be afraid. God, help us to be those kinds of people who can walk out of here with a real sense of your provision, a God who's batting a thousand, who when he promises something, keeps his promise. Do that for us, God, and give us an assurance that you care for us, that our tendency in our fallen state to worry is useless, and that you've promised to take care of us. That'll free us up to pursue your kingdom. Let us do that this week with abandon, with sacrifice, being willing, as Paul said, to spend and be expended for the souls of people and for advancing the cause of Christ in this world. In Jesus' name.